Hello, everyone, and welcome to Queens of the Bees, your favorite queer movie and TV podcast in hours two. I am your co-host, TJ, the, for once, rather emotionally balanced Pisces, and this is my co-host. I'm Aaron. And you are? Your partner. For the moment. <laughs> What's your astrological sign, dummy? Um, I think it's the, like, the goat thing or something. I don't know. Well, that, there, are, there are two goat things, but you're the Aries, the ram. <laughs> Anyway, and what are we talking about this week? Uh, the goat thing. No, wait, that was the other question. This week we're... T- <laughs> I can't even go on with that one. <laughs> this is what I have to put up with, listeners. This is what I deal with on a daily basis. This quote-unquote humor. Anyway, I'll answer the question, since I'm not sure Aaron can pull himself together enough to, to actually answer what I was asking. We're watching American Horror Stories in New York City season. Okay, perfect. I'm impressed. Um, American, as he says, American Horror Story NYC, which is, I think, you know, an interesting season. Now, full disclosure, Aaron and I are both paid by American Horror Story. No, we're not really, but <laughs> we both are long-time devotees of American Horror Story. Um, we are unironic viewers. Like, I think we take genuine pleasure in this series in a way that many people don't. It is a remarkably divisive series like i find that people either love it or hate it there's not a lot of in between and i think there's a lot of reasons for that part of it is just ryan murphy mm-hmm. <laughs> who is himself a deeply divisive figure but as soon as i started watching this seat or this uh, most recent season i thought okay we have to do an episode of the podcast on this well i've always wanted to do a podcast on the show and we because all of the seasons are so rich in queer content that i figured you know why not just jump in and do this one what you know it's probably no different from all the others right right except for it's actually very gay it actually brings the gay out from the sub out of the closet if you'll forgive mm-hmm. the expression and into the mainstream um i mean obviously if you've watched any of the seasons of american horror story the queerness has been there in everything from the diva worship with the early seasons and jessica lang the casting of sarah paulson renowned lesbian like you know there's and of course the the schlock and the mm-hmm. camp and the irony has all and even the sort of narrative and coherence one could argue is part and parcel of the the american horror story brand so i think that the queerness has always been there Sometimes more explicitly than others. Like, if you look at cult, obviously the main couple is a lesbian couple. Mm-hmm. But now we actually, like, are making these whole story about gay people. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's revealing that the show is also populated very exclusively by queer actors, mm-hmm. which is kind of nice. I, I really, say what you will about Murphy as a creator, I really do applaud him giving, like, roles to, to queer actors in queer roles, I think that that's really powerful. Mm-hmm. So this season sees a you know a pretty robust cast. We have Joe Montello, we have Russell Tovey, we have Sandra Bernhardt, we have <laughs> we have Patty Lapone. <laughs> you know, it's a pretty banger season um, when it comes to casting. And uh, you know, I'm sad that we don't have Ryan Mur- or so we don't, don't have Sarah Paulson or Evan Peters or his butt. Yes, I mean that is a shortcoming. Mm-hmm. I think, but I'm still very upset. Clearly, they're too busy with whatever other things Mario Murphy is cooking up at this exact moment but there's still much to enjoy so how would you summarize this season if you were just telling this to someone who'd never seen it how would you sort of tell them what was what's the sort of narrative thrust of this season it's about AIDS it is about <laughs> I mean it's I don't know that there's do they ever say the word AIDS I don't, I don't believe so I mean, so it's like a thinly disguised allegory mm-hmm. for AIDS like I think that so I mean that's drill into that because I'm, that's part of why I'm, I still don't know how I feel about this season because it's so obvious what it's about that it feels like it should be about something else if yes. that makes sense what I'm saying like mm-hmm. usually with American Horror Story there's at least some layers of obfuscation between the text itself and what it's trying to say mm-hmm. but here it's just like oh is it just about AIDS yes. or is it about something or, or what else is it about besides AIDS? Like, it's we, like, nope, really just about AIDS. Really just about AIDS. Um, I mean, it's kind of like if you took angels in America and fed it through like the Ryan Murphy machine, this mm-hmm. is what you would get. Exactly. Like it's kind of like a hallucinogenic fever dream with some horror, with horror, obviously elements in it. Yes. It's yeah. I always feel like this season felt, I, the way I described it to myself, it's just like Angels in America, but far less scary. <laughs> and how, how so? 
mainly because uh, since for me, since this series sticks so much to the history that, of course, needs to be told, needs to, of course, to younger generations to know about it, all that kind of stuff. But a history that is already familiar. I'm just kind of like it's it's ground that has been covered already in lots of other things. It's new to the to the Ryan Murphy universe, perhaps, but not new to media. Right. I mean, and of course, Ryan Murphy directed the Normal Heart. Like mm-hmm. it's not like I mean, oh, that's it, right. Yes. So mm-hmm. I mean, he has you know engaged with the question of AIDS before. Mm-hmm. So it's striking that we have this. It feels like it's our universe, but one step to the left. If mm-hmm. that makes sense, like it's obviously our world, but it feels unearthly or alterworldly. I don't know mm-hmm. if, if I'm making sense because yeah. I just I think there's something off about the season. But that's, I think, deliberate. Yeah. So, like, it feels strange, and I think it's it's supposed to feel that Because there is that device about the deer and all of that stuff. <laughs> right. I mean, the, there's the, the, you know, the heavy in, um, insinuation that it's from Plum Island, like, that mm-hmm. there's some sort of government conspiracy that, you know, has been, that has resulted in the deer getting infected on Fire Island and this whole big thing. I'm not sure how seriously we're intended to take that or whether that's just the paranoid delusions of Sarah, Sandra Bernhard's, like, Fran, the mm-hmm. lesbian, who's sort of the one who's propagating this. Um, but even so, like, that's part of it, too. Like, I think that what this is capturing is the sense of, like, fear and paranoia and just absolute uncertainty that was very much, obviously, of the period when mm-hmm. AIDS first emerged before it was kind of understood Mm -hmm. but i also think that in that sense it's also partaking of covid obviously like the early days of covid when Mm -hmm. we responded pretty much as irrationally as we did to aids yeah yeah like we in 30 odd years of immunology we are still as absolutely batshit when it comes to infectious disease as we were then Mm -hmm. so i think that this series kind of articulates and expresses our real confusion about this kind of stuff these kinds of things yeah and the series does try to get at some sort of historically accurate stuff about when aids emerged and uh the question that and i want to say this before i even got into that tj with uh when you were talking about some of the problems from the past about sort of information coming out and not knowing what to do also not knowing who or what to trust right would have been an important part of this political history as well and i think the series does a good job of reflecting that history um with having the folks when it does start to appear that you know this disease is coming after gay folks and what you should do about it um is it you know are the concerns just sort of a way of clamping down on the fun right that this community is having or is there an actual real concern for an actual health crisis that's emerging that was a real doubt that right. was a part of history that the series picks up on as well. For me, it falls a little bit more flat thinking of it in terms of the COVID situation, because unlike with AIDS in real life and, of course, the disease in uh, American Horror Story, with COVID, it's pretty obvious right away what's going on. It's not an invisible you know, kind of disease until it's already far too late mm-hmm. to do anything about it. Uh, like AIDS kind of seemed like when it first emerged, because of course, when doctors didn't know what to do, because they didn't know what it was, they couldn't do much. Right. Uh, COVID's not really like that. You know, it's like it's a respiratory disorder like a lot of others. Right. And so it felt flat, like trying to think about the show in that way as a sort of like post-COVID response and sort, sort of showing it, our human response to that just felt, it feels weird. Hmm. To me, thinking of it as post-COVID, it's easier for me to interpret it as sort of post-AIDS. Well, I, I would argue that it's kind of both. Like, yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't think it's one or the other. No, what I'm saying is that bringing in the post-COVID makes it weird for me. Oh, okay. I mean, that's fair. I mean, I'm just saying like that's what I was, whether consciously or not. That seems to me that that's what the show is engaging with. Yeah. Like, I think there are multiple streams go like tributaries flowing into the river. Yes, yeah. in NY, American Horror Story NYC. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's no accident, of course, that both COVID and AIDS emerge in a city like New York City, mm-hmm. like where gay life is so concentrated. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that, that obviously, this, you know, as the season begins, there is this disease running rampant um, on Fire Island that then makes the leap to New York City. But at the same time, we also have a number of other kind of plot threads. And I, I really want to, I don't know that this season is particularly like coherent, narratively speaking, but I don't know that it necessarily wants to be because it's American Horror Story and it's never been a particularly narrative coherent show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, if I'm being honest, like, I mean, I love it. And part of it, of what I enjoy is just the, how batshit it is. Mm-hmm. Like, it just kind of throws 
and you know queer scholars have written about this that it kind of when you watch American Horror Story you're not watching for the sort of narrative seriality that you expect of like prestige television like mm-hmm. where everything ties up neatly where there are you know character arcs and you know consistency that there's something very penny dreadfulish about mm-hmm. this like it's more of just the shock value yeah. and all the kind of excess that's involved like there's an excess of narrative mm-hmm. and that is true because you know on the one hand there's like the domestic drama of patrick who's played by russell tovey and gino who's played by joe montello like that's one story that i think works like mostly well mm-hmm. you know as they get and because patrick is quasi-closeted he's divorced his wife played by leslie grossman who i find very irritating but (laughs) is fortunately not very present in this show or yeah in this particular season but then you also have like this there's this whole serial killer plot which involves jeff hiller as this guy who's basically putting together frankenstein's monster Mm -hmm. to sort of use that as a uh, an indictment of police um neglect Mm -hmm. and citywide neglect but that story's jettisoned like what two or three episodes before the end Mm -hmm. and quite summarily like they just kill him and that's Mm. it yep which was like okay so that's one plot but then there's also the masked man who's going around basically killing all the people infected with the virus so Mm -hmm. i'm guessing that's sort of like the externalizing of the aids phenomenon to to an individual Mm -hmm. again if it sounds crazy to you what i'm describing that's because I think it is. Yes. <laughs> it's a very crazy season. And I'm tr- I, even as I'm sitting here talking about it and thinking about it with Aaron, I'm kind of struggling to wrap my head around exactly what it is that I'm supposed to be taking away from yeah. this season. Yeah, it's like it's just for me a bunch of sort of interwoven stories. Whether or not they sort of mesh together very well, I don't know is the point. Right. just kind of like, here's a story. Here's another story. Take another story. Right. And I said, you know, because we also have, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that we also have Charlie Carver, who plays Adam, who's also disgusted with the police because his roommate goes missing. And then we also have Zachary Quinto, who's also part of the the, the um, Ryan Murphy repertory mm-hmm. company, who's this hard partying, very bitchy gay man who basically like exploits and we're led to believe sexually assaults young men um but then there's also his boyfriend whose name is theo played by isaac powell who then gets with charlie carver's character but also in the past patrick had basically like had sex with a young man who died during the sex Mm -hmm. who was then buried on fire island and the guy who was building the frankenstein's monster was the one they called in to like dismember the body and hide it in the sand which brings us to Dennis O'Hare, who is also part of the Ryan Murphy Repertory mm-hmm. Company, who plays this fixer for the Mafia. Yep. And I'm just... I, I, yep. I, yep, I'm just like, <laughs> okay, so all of these pieces are like just kind of moving constantly in and out of each other. Mm-hmm. And there's also, you know, Patti Lapone, who's like a, a, jet, a, like a nightclub singer who loves gay people, obviously. So, I, you know... I'm just like, wow, there is a lot. Even for American Horror Story, there's a lot going on in this season. Yep. And I mean, it's and it's not like, say, Asylum, where there's also a lot of things going on. But it's all within the context of the Asylum. Mm-hmm, yes. So it, it, it's, it, it's deliberately mad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or even Freak Show, which also has a lot going on. But also within the context of, you know, a, a, a space where that would be expected. Mm-hmm. Or Roanoke, which is a house. Or a cult, which is about... like uh, I, So, you know... Every season up to this one at least has some sort of explanation for why things are so crazy. But I mean, given that it's set in New York City, perhaps yeah, that's, the, that's, uh, maybe that's yeah. the point is that, you know, in the modern world, the chaos is in some ways indecipherable. Like you can't c- c- concretize it into sort of some totalizing narrative that makes sense of everything. Yeah. And I don't think it's just the sort of the modern world part. I think it's specifically the New York of, you know, of that particular era mm-hmm. uh, again in the 80s where there's just a lot going on particularly among queer communities and all that kind of stuff I think that I think that's the reason why that particular location was chosen for this uh, you know you could even have gone to San Francisco instead I guess as a secondary location but I think mm-hmm. it really needed to be New York right uh, for this so you know I, I, so what do we think this season is arguing that I mean because every season of American Horror Story has a sort of point so like if you look at Murder House, it's about, like, you know, the decay of the American nuclear family. If you look Mm -hmm. at Hotel, it's about, like, the legacies of 
you know, various movie industries and the way it cannibalizes people. If you mm-hmm. look at even arguably one of the worst seasons, which was last season, it was about like, you know, creativity and what people sacrifice to be creatives. What do we think is the sort of point of this season then? If there is one. AIDS. <laughs> Can you elaborate a little bit? Like... No, I can't. I think that's about it. Which is why this season feels a little bit strange to me because I think you nailed what was missing mm-hmm. for this. Is that I do have a hard time understanding what the overall point is beyond the very obvious point in that AIDS matters. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, because, you know, obviously, I don't find American Horror Story very scary. Like, I mean, I don't find it traditionally scary in the way that we associate with horror. I do find it unsettling sometimes, because I do think what American Horror Story does pretty effectively from most of its seasons is kind of excavate uh, historical traumas of mm-hmm. an American history. Um, even in something like uh, Armageddon, or Apocalypse, sorry, um, you know, has moments of that too. Mm-hmm. But it seems to me that, you know, if anything, and maybe this is what we're kind of dancing around and why we're having trouble bringing the plane in for a kind of interpretive landing to strangle a metaphor, <laughs> is that it is to some degree about the sort of unrepresentable nature of the trauma of AIDS. Like, because mm-hmm. I think that there is something for gay people in particular that is just so yawning about the. It's a, to paraphrase in the Golden Girls, it's a frightening, gaping mom <laughs> of inescapable trauma. Like, because yeah. I, I think there, because AIDS was just such a tremendous blow to that generation of gay men that it's kind of impossible to really totalize, to put it into words, to mm-hmm. make it make sense. Yeah. In the same way, I say like other historical traumas are similarly difficult to Mm -hmm. wrap our heads around yeah and i think something that i can give this series credit for in terms of an overarching idea it might be in trying to make that that information and that idea clearer to younger folks who might not remember Mm -hmm. you know who weren't around at all you know for for that time i mean i was just a little kid you know, right. dur- during the 80s so it's not like i was a part of some sort of queer community but i was alive and hearing about mm-hmm. those things you know like in the news and all that kind of stuff but for folks who are you know even younger who only know a world of relatively successful treatments for hiv mm-hmm. uh the seriousness of it might go over their heads. Right. Uh, and I think maybe in the show there's a reminder that even though we've got those kinds of things now that do, that make things a lot better for folks who are HIV positive, um, one thing that we have to keep in mind is that no gains are guaranteed to be permanent. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the point that was trying to be made uh, with the sort of weird protest of like using the victims to get the police and all the it seems so weird for me watching this you know from today because I'm like we've made strides on mm-hmm. some of these things but it's like remember that stuff can be fleeting right and I think if if I'm searching for some kind of overall meaning for the season I think this might be it is that even though it might look like we've actually made some strides from those early days of the crisis we shouldn't take them for granted. Right. Yeah, I actually, I, in addition, I, I still stand by my COVID allegory for mm-hmm. the moment. But I actually think that you're, I think you've actually gestured toward an even more important, like, cultural stream that it's partaking in, which, you know, we've spoke, I believe, last week when we were talking about the shooting in Colorado. Mm-hmm. Um, we, you know, we talked about the, the rising tide of anti-LGBT sentiment. Mm-hmm. And obviously it's really centered around trans people right now. But if you think that the conservative movement is content to let gay people let off scot-free you are sorely mistaken there is a growing like antipathy toward gay people writ large mm-hmm. toward queer people writ large mm-hmm. and it's something that i i see it i feel it but i can't necessarily like and i can pinpoint certain instances but as of yet it's more of a feeling than a you know a concretizable thing mm-hmm. and i think that that's one of the key things in american horror story is part is sort of articulating refracted obviously through the trauma of aids yeah like and so you know there's a sort of conflation of those two things but i mean if there's one thing that gay people are familiar with unfortunately it's trauma (laughs) like Mm -hmm. you know we're all all of us in ways large and small are familiar with the ways in which we are marginalized Mm -hmm. and in which and unfortunately particularly in the latter half of the 20th century and throughout the 21st gay people and queer people have often been the victims of violence, like both explicit violence, but also like violence through ignorance, violence through like being ignored by the police 
um, if not outright brutalized by the police. Mm-hmm. And so I think that those are all kind of cultural things that are going on at the present that American Horror Story is sort of tapping into. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, I think that, you know, there's something really raw and honest about this season of American Horror Story that lacks, I think, some of the irony that we see in usual American Horror Story. Like yes. There's usually... A, an ever so faint note of detachment that we're not supposed to take any of this particularly seriously, but it feels like there's some, this feels like a turning point to me mm-hmm. or possibly. And I mean, it depends on what the next season is, but it's one of those moments where like, it almost feels too real mm-hmm. in the same way that cult did, which yeah. I still, I can't rewatch cult cause it's just too, I don't need to be re-traumatized for 2016. <laughs> but I think that, you know, that I, I, I don't necessarily think that the aim of NYC is to re-traumatize us, but I think it is to make us aware of mm-hmm. what's going on. Exactly. And I mean, and I think that in that sense, like Mr. Whitey, which is such a white, sorry, Whiteley, um, you know, and I give Jeff Hiller really a lot of credit as an actor for being willing to always play slightly weird characters, mm-hmm. you know, because he's kind of gangly and, you know, he's not particularly like conventionally attractive, like in the same way that say like Charlie Carver is. Yeah. So I give him a lot of credit for being willing to lean into this very strange, almost insect-like character, <laughs> you know, who whose mission is to create this Frankenstein's monster to basically terrify the populace into being aware of what is going on. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, to me, that was probably the most unsettling of the storylines marshaled in this season. Yeah. And I was a little disappointed that it was ended so abruptly because I thought it was going to go somewhere more interesting. So what did you make of it? Uh, it reminded me of, uh, unfortunately, the phenomenon of folks, you know, who in order who stage, you know, things in order to gain attention to an ongoing problem in society, mm-hmm. like, say, neglect from police or something like that. So you go out and you create the conditions... Uh, that you think aren't getting enough attention so that you can draw attention to them, not really realizing that if you hadn't created those conditions, maybe those conditions wouldn't have been there. Like, that's that's what I see that character doing this entire time, which is why it actually didn't bother me that he was dispatched so easily mm. <laughs> in the story because I felt like that's the kind of impulse that kind of needs to be sort of tossed out fairly quickly. <laughs> okay, interesting. I, that's, I, I think that's a very generous but a very acute reading of that particular storyline. Mm-hmm. Um, it reminds me of those people who I, I see on social media every now and again who are like, I don't know, throw bottles of milk out in a grocery store to protest. Mm-hmm. I don't know, whatever yeah. dumb ass shit they exactly. do. Making enormous work for the people who work at said store but mm-hmm. not doing really anything mm-hmm. to address the problem. So yeah. I think that that's a smart reading. And I, I, I guess I was sort of expecting it to go in a different direction just because this is American Horror Story. So I thought maybe we would get it like, you know, that he would somehow bring this creature to life or whatever. Mm, but, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's not what we get. It's just this lump of flesh that doesn't really do anything. Mm. So I mean, but I think that you're right, that that's maybe the point, that yeah. the show is kind of making this scathing criticism of that kind of like ultimately self-serving and deeply narcissistic mode of quote-unquote activism. Yes. You know, I suppose to say like Gino. Mm-hmm. It's a very different kind of exactly. like, activist of a sort of, in a very thinly veiled Larry Kramer figure. Mm-hmm. Like that's sort of the immediate, that was, as soon as I saw the character, saw the way he was a writer for this, you know, a stand in for like the advocate mm-hmm. or other kind of gay magazine, I thought, okay, this is the Larry. And I mean, obviously I've seen the normal hearts, so I know that that's, you know, mm-hmm. very much on Ryan Murphy's mind, but that was immediately who I thought of. Cause Gino is the kind of like in your face, queer activist, Who's not going around killing people. Exactly. <laughs> you know, he's going out to try to, like, expose the truth, all right. that kind of thing. <laughs> and, I mean, I, I did find, like, his story with Patrick to be one of the, like, the highlights of the season. Mm-hmm. And I think that's partially because I think well, I'm very attracted to both Basil Tovey and Gino, Gino Borelli. And really, I'm sorry, uh, Joe Montel- Montello. I mean, really, isn't that what it's about? It's <laughs> attractive. But I'm not. I actually, but I actually found those two characters in their fraught relationship one of the better parts and the best sort of narratively co- convincing parts mm-hmm. of, this sh- of this season in some ways they seem to helicopter into the rest of the madness like they seem to be this, this for all of their domestic woes because clearly like patrick is closeted at, at work for the first part of the season he had sex with someone to death like mm-hmm. so there's a lot going on there but i found their story to be the most like resonant and rich yes you know as did i uh mainly i think it got the best sort of overall coverage i feel like it it had the strongest arc like it went somewhere right 
uh, it wasn't, it didn't stay sort of one note, kind of like the friendship between Fran and uh, Charlie Garber's character. I can't remember. Oh, um, Adam. Adam, yes. Oh, uh, yeah. We'll get to them in a minute because mm-hmm. I, I want to talk about them a little bit too. Um, but I mean, their story is, you know, an interesting one because they both come down with this virus mm-hmm. slash AIDS. And Patrick is actually the one who dies first. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we have um, Gino kind of helping him through the, you know, through the stages of the disease as it takes his sight and all the other things. So it's that happens in the last couple episodes where the show kind of shifts away from what we call as, you know, the, the traditional horror more into like the queer AIDS melodrama, mm-hmm. which is an interesting move to make. Yep. Um, but somehow it does make sense, I guess, a little bit like with the general ethos of this very strange season. Yeah. Like, you know, it's the sort of, I don't know, after the climax, it's kind of the, the, the segue out. Like, mm-hmm. and so I think that it works like dramatically. Yeah. Even if I also find it strange. To, <laughs> and, and, the, and, you know, given how different it is from the other seasons of American Horror Story. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, it's just, I don't know. It's, it's a puzzling season. It's a very, especially like, it, it feels not at all like American Horror Story as it has been conceived so far. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's talk then about Adam and, you know, his boyfriend and his relationship with the lesbian and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. What, I, what did you said, you said you didn't find it particularly like convincing or, or, you know, yeah, you said I felt like, you know, the, the, the friendship of course felt fairly one that it didn't really go anywhere. It's typical sort of gay male friendship with a woman. Right. <laughs> and when I say typical, I use that term very deliberately. Like I said, it felt very much like that. Uh, and then, of course, when he does start dating the other guy, of course, that, you know, I feel like, okay. Right. You know, like two attractive people <laughs> get together. Lovely. Right. And okay. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, I mean, obviously, Charlie Carver is very traditionally attractive. Also part of the Ryan Murphy Repertory Company, having appeared as Cowboy in um, uh, The Boys in the Band. Mm-hmm. Um but I agree with you because he has this relationship with Billy Lord, uh, her her character, Dr. Hannah Wells, also part of the repertory company and part mm-hmm. of American Horror Story for quite a while now. And I was just kind of like, okay, I'm not particularly like invested in these characters yeah. because they feel not, even through American Horror Story, which admittedly characters aren't always at strong point, at least they have weight usually. But these characters to me didn't have either the sort of dramatic or narrative like complexity of Gino and Patrick. And they didn't even, I mean, I would even rather have spent more time with Sandra Bernhardt's Fran, frankly, Mm -hmm. Um, because they just felt very one note and they didn't really do a whole lot. Mm -hmm. Like the only thing that, because it just seems to me that Adam is kind of the pure Mm -hmm. character, the sort of ingenue, I guess Mm -hmm. we could say, you know, kind of flitting about and getting to know, you know. I guess an audience surrogate, for lack of a better word, just because he's so kind of boy next doorish, mm-hmm. um, you know. And it's such a distinction to say Zachary Quinto's character or any of the other sort of more seedy individuals yeah. that we see. Mm-hmm. So, which brings us to, of course, you know Zachary Quinto, who and I think is an interesting character in his own right. Like Quinto is obviously no stranger to American Horror Story, having been in Murder House and Asylum. I think he was in Murder House. I know he was at least in Asylum. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, he's obviously this very hedonistic, vicious kind of person, a kind of almost Mapplethorpian along mm-hmm. kind of character. Robert Mapplethorpe. Mm-hmm. Let's try that again. Robert Mapplethorpe uh, or Mapplethorpe. So what do we make of him? Like, Because I think that he's one of the more interesting characters, but we don't get to spend as much time like learning about him as I would have liked. Yeah, well, you know, of course, he's tied in very much with what's going on behind the scenes, all the mysterious cases that involve the dead bodies that show right. he ends up being closely involved with a lot of that stuff. Right. So that at least he's got that going on. But in terms of that, otherwise, he's just sort of the sort of been there over it all kind of party boy like right. that, that's kind of who he is and it seems like that's him kind of to his core mm-hmm. it's like i was waiting for there to be some other layer underneath it right to explain sort of like you know what it is he's seeking or, or but i don't we don't get that do we I'm no like, not really i mean because i'm thinking like you know if you look at asylum where he plays such an 
evil character, but an evil character with depth. And like, mm-hmm. like there's at least something there. Yeah. To me, he's kind of like it seems to me that this cast of this season are roughly split. On the one hand, are the characters like, you know, like you know, like Patrick, like even Dennis O'Hare's character, who are rich textured individuals and part of that is the people chosen to play them who are just i think really good actors mm-hmm. and on the other obviously you have the charlie carvers and the zachary and i like zachary quinto but he's just it feels like he's almost phoning in this character because mm-hmm. there's just not a lot of like anything to go on yeah and i would say that's even true of hannah like yes. that's really boring. like she's the, the the one researching and you know figuring out like what this disease is mm-hmm but I'm also just like, what is the point of this character? Like, yeah. at least with Whiteley, who, you know, even though, I, like I said, I was kind of frustrated with where that story ended up, I at least felt like the show was giving us something with him. Mm-hmm. Like, at least he, he was a compelling person. Yeah. And I just don't feel that way about those other individual characters. Yeah. Like, it just feels to me as if they're just padding to fill out the season. Yeah, and it was like, with Hannah, again, like I said before, she's, like, she's just sort of like the friend. Right. And, she, and I she's mean, helpful. And, and one thing that her character did do, along with some of the other ones, is that it did remind me of how, the in these stories about this mo- particular moment in history, it's like we often sort of treat women as instruments. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're just a sort of help the men along in the story and I felt like we saw that happening in this story a lot right I mean I will say that one of the things that I and just really briefly uh, you know even Hannah's death seems rather understated Mm because she's basically it's implied that she is strangled by the nameless Mm -hmm. phantom this huge muscular daddy figure that basically kills everyone which I'm not convinced is real I think he's just like the like what people like it's death I guess is what Mm -hmm. we're supposed to believe but we can get that to that in a moment but I really enjoyed Sandra Bernhardt's, like, lesbian character, because she's in some... I mean, well, first of all, it's Sandra Bernhardt, like, mm-hmm. and who was always amazing. Um, if you've never seen her guest star in Will and Grace, you <laughs> must watch that episode. Her, and she has a very brief cameo in a later one. It's from the original one of the show. She is amazing. <laughs> of course, she's very good in Roseanne. But anyway, you know, she really takes Gino to task for kind of neglecting lesbian voices mm-hmm. at the magazine. Which, yes. I mean, is a historical allusion, of, of course, to the way that the gay movement has long been very misogynist. Like, and I'm not even, like, subtle about it. Mm-hmm. has pretty much been misogynist to its core mm-hmm. and has been very dismissive of women and lesbians in particular. And I love that we get her opportunity to sort of take them to task and just as importantly to write lesbians back into the history of AIDS because mm-hmm. it is you know it's more common knowledge than it used to be but it is often forgotten that lesbians were the ones who took care of gay men when their families abandoned them mm-hmm. so I think that that's I think the show does a, a good service by reminding us of that history yes. uh, and I think that's a very valuable thing mm-hmm. so let's talk a little bit then I mean because obviously one of the more "Quote unquote scary parts of this series season is the 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 looming figure who is always appearing to the people who are being infected with this virus, mm-hmm. and I'm just I mean, part mm. of me. Oh, yeah, go ahead. I was just gonna say, Big Daddy. Right. It's kind of like so. It seems obvious, maybe too obvious that it's he's like the Grim Reaper, basically. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's having thought about it more in the weeks since the series concluded, season concluded, it's like, is that what we're supposed to take away? Like, that seemed, again, that just seems too obvious. Like, you know, and I mean, certainly people see him, but also not really, because he just, like, he has ability to disappear. But, Mm -hmm. like, it just seems like it's too obvious of a metaphor, right? (laughs) Well, you know, I figure at that point, I mean, the idea of death personified has been done so many times, I don't know that there is a way to make it interesting anymore right so i mean so i guess we're basically just supposed to take away that this is yeah the, the personification of death that is stalking these particular people who are being infected with the the new this new virus mm-hmm. and maybe there's something in there that there's something distinctive in this particular styling of of the grim reaper as this leather daddy type of figure that maybe there's something that it's like hey be on the lookout either certain people or certain people doing certain things, you really need to be on the lookout. Mm-hmm. Maybe that, and, and, and I'm guessing here at this point, but maybe I'm just so steeped into this that I know it already, but maybe there's the presumption that that sort of leather daddy figure wouldn't be legible mm. to folks outside of the queer community, maybe at the time, but would be sort of instantaneously obvious to folks in it. Right. 
maybe there's something to that idea, but yeah, I don't know. I, mean, I feel like I'm stretching here. Right, because I mean, as, in addition to Angels in America, I feel like in the new, the, nor, the normal heart, I also feel like this show is kind of a pastiche of Cruising, like mm-hmm. the very famous movie with Al Pacino who plays a detective who gets like sort of interpolated into the leather BDSM community. So I think that, you know, there is another, that's another kind of like thematic node of this season is like darker desires that people are afraid to give into because, mm-hmm. you know, Patrick in particular really wants to give into BDSM, but doesn't mm-hmm. like, but does it on the sly and mm-hmm. is not honest with Gino about that fact. Yep. So I think that, you know, but that's again, so cursorily kind of engaged with it it doesn't feel like it's a real important point it's just kind of like there and then we move on Mm -hmm. so i mean that's if i have a i don't know if it's a complaint because i'm not really sure to the extent to which that's intended like that's the thing i kind of grapple with even now is are these sort of the narrative what i would call like the narrative flippancy of this season is it deliberate or is it just shitty storytelling (laughs) Who can say? Right, I mean, like, so, I mean that's that, like that's where I come down. Yeah. I don't actually know because I mean, next time you, uh, you talk to Ryan Murphy, why don't you just ask him? <laughs> yes, I'll do that when I put, I'll, get, I'll pull up my Rolodex and, and give Ryan Murphy a call. Yeah, no, or if you're listening, Ryan, just you know, let us know. Right, Ryan Murphy, tell us what you were thinking. If, yes, exactly. I mean, because that's the thing is, I've been very interested to to look at the critical reception of this season, which has actually been pretty warm, which tends to be the case. Like the critics tend to like. American Horror Story, mostly because, like, if you just buy into the madness, mm-hmm. then you're fine. Yep. Uh, and I think that that's just, like, the attitude. And I do think I will give this season a lot of props for being willing to take some risks storytelling-wise. Like, to be willing to not tread the ground that's been trodden before. And so, as with so many things, like, I'm willing to take some of the more less, or more or less, like... <laughs> half-baked elements because mm-hmm. the rest of it i think lands well enough yeah and i actually felt almost the opposite way i felt like going with the aid storyline made it for me feel so safe mm. because one it's the kind of story that no one's going to complain about it like who's going to come out and say you shouldn't be talking about AIDS right now? like no who's gonna do that right right you know it's it's sort of safe at this point to do that um and in some ways above reproach and one thing that i like about uh the other seasons of american horror story is that it'll goes in directions that feel riskier sometimes Mm -hmm. you know this felt far less risky yeah i mean i guess what i was getting at is that i meant that like because of the, if, if we go with my argument, which we should because I'm always right, um, if we go with my argument that it's kind of like putting into visual form the unspeakable trauma of AIDS, mm-hmm. like that I think is interesting and, and mm-hmm. worth examination. But I do agree with you that it does feel a little less like fun than yeah. some of the other seasons. Like there's a little bit less, as you say, adventurism. Mm-hmm. Um, even with, you know, compared to last season, which was a quite a hit or miss adventure, mm-hmm. I think. Certainly in it... I do think that, as was so often the case, this one kind of stuck the landing. Like, I feel... Because in the end, like, one of the last scenes we get is Gino kind of, like, aging. Mm -hmm. And, like, dealing with the continuing effects of living with this chronic illness. But it's a very, 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 very long montage. Mm -hmm. Which, I mean, montages really should not go more than a minute. But Mm -hmm. this goes on for, like, what, three, four, five minutes? The entire episode. (laughs) Right, it's like the entire last half of the very final episode is just him... Doing all kind, of, it's it's very weird. Like, I think there's him doing his taxes is in there somewhere. At some yeah, it's, it feels rather <laughs> mundane, and so I'm always like, could you just stick the landing? Like someone needs get a script doctor in here to help Ryan Murphy mm-hmm. land. Is all I'm saying. So before we kind of wrap up our main discussion, I do want to give two credits. One is obviously to Dennis O'Hare, my dear lover, because I really do love Dennis O'Hare. <laughs> he is one of my favorite returning company you know recurring, returning members of of ryan murphy's repertory company and i actually think that you know he's an interesting character mm-hmm. like you know he plays henry grant who's this you know basically a hitman for the mafia mm-hmm. or a fixer you know who who picks up the pieces after things have gone mm-hmm. awry a fixer for the mafia and he's as gay as a picnic he is <laughs> as gay as picnic but i think that you know if we're gonna go with the idea that that myc is kind of 
a pastiche of different historical influences, then, you know, he's clearly a representation of the kind of gay that would be in the pocket of the mafia, which mm-hmm. was very common yeah. previous to the present, as far as I know. I don't yeah. know. Maybe gays still are in the pocket. I don't Why know. I wouldn't. <laughs> you know, so I mean, I think that there's something really interesting there. But then there's also, obviously, Patti Lapone, whose name is Kathy Pizzazz, which, first mm-hmm. of all, is a great name. Um, and it's Patti Lapone, so of course we love her no matter where she appears mm-hmm. or why, <laughs> you know, with her brassy trap. And of course she has to sing because, yes. you know, it's Patti Lapone. Uh, but I did, I, I really also, an, another kind of, you know, historical allusion to these kind of nightclubs and, and bathhouses and so forth where these women, like Bette Midler, got their mm-hmm. start. So it's it's another sort of interesting illusion, cause I, or illusion. And I do appreciate the way that NYC kind of immerses us in the milieu of North York City gay life mm-hmm. in the 80s, which, you know, for many people has gone beyond recall, both right. because there are so few people left for the period, mm-hmm. but also because just so much of New York City has changed since then. Right. And that particular like underground life of that was so queer has vanished, mm-hmm. um, both because New York has just changed so much, you know, with the cleaning up of the city and also because gays are just now mainstream. Exactly. Like, maybe it hasn't vanished. Maybe he's just so underground we don't know about right, it. Right, well, I mean, <laughs> well, we live in small town Maryland, so we wouldn't know about it anyway. But. And, and also, I wanted to say, I love the, that the show has this moment of Paddy Lupone. It's like, you since you mentioned Bette Miller getting her start there, with Paddy Lupone's character, we have someone who's sort of at a later stage in her mm-hmm. career, you know, who's looking back after having been an influence for so long, and we get this wonderful moment of watching her audition a drag performance imitate her to carry on doing the show yes that i mean that the, like i said there are these grace notes that are very <laughs> lovely um to use a musical expression um that i think help anchor some of the other more like more over the all over the place yes. elements of this season so how 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 would we rank this um, it, you know, this is what the eleventh season mm-hmm. um, of this series, and we've you know we've watched them all. We've even like dabbled our toes in American Horror Stories, its spinoff. But where do we rank this as far as like top set? Well, the one in thirds, say. better than Roanoke. That's all I'm gonna say. See, I I am a Roanoke <laughs> defender. I quite liked Roanoke, but any I guess I'm alone in that regard. Like I'm literally, literally only, alone. I'm literally the only person I know who say who says that I like Roanoke. I will say that I think it's probably in the second tier. Like mm-hmm. I think that it's compared to say like my favorite seasons would be obviously Asylum. Yes. Obviously Freak Show mm-hmm. and Hotel mm-hmm. and. Apocalypse, mm-hmm. and then I think this would come next with like the, um, with Roanoke, with Cult, with, um, Murder House. Which I'm I'm sick of Murder House just because it's been done <laughs> like it appears so much. I'm like, oh my god, could we please do something right. else other than Murder House? But it's the OG. Uh, yeah, but it comes up in every other property, every other story associated with this particular yeah. franchise. And I'm just like, oh, enough! I don't care about Murder House anymore. Anyway. <laughs> I, I think that I rank it in the, in the te- second tier yeah. of, of seasons. Yeah, I can't really put them in tiers because I like the, all of them except Roanoke. So. I don't. <laughs> uh, it's not not my favorite, but it's it's up there. I feel like it's a, it ends up being a fairly solid season in my opinion because I think that what. This is a bit of weird grousing I feel like I've been doing for this episode because I feel like what's missing was some of the narrative risk that I see in the other seasons, but that's often the thing that causes the problems that I have with the other seasons. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, so I, I guess, so I guess Ryan Murphy can't win with me. That's true. I mean, that's, I think that's just his life in general. Mm-hmm. Like, I will say that I think that this season made the wise choice to keep the number of episodes limited. I think that, you know, when Ryan Murphy's projects get too many episodes, they go way way off Mm -hmm. but you know a nice 10 episode season i think helps rein in some of his more um, exuberant shall we say narrative impulses Mm -hmm. so overall i liked it i thought it was good i mean we obviously liked it well enough that we decided to do an episode of this podcast about Mm -hmm. it so i mean really is there any higher praise we could offer than Mm -hmm. that exactly i mean i'm sure that ryan murphy was yearning for the praise of queens of the beast so you you can relax ryan now you've heard it officially we liked it yes the, it gets the TJ and Aaron, the Queens of the Bees, seal of approval. Mm-hmm. We need to make that a thing. We need to make that part of the brand. <laughs> it gets the highest grade I ever give, 7 out of 10. That is true. Even <laughs> I get a 7 out of 10. <laughs> All right. Well, that wraps up our main discussion. So if you'll give us just a moment, we'll be right back to give us to talk about a little bit about the things that are bringing us joy. 
Well, welcome back, everyone. So as you know, I love segments. I'll make up segments just sometimes because um, mm-hmm. I need to fill out the time and because I just like segments. And who knows? Maybe I won't do this again. Maybe I will. Maybe I won't. I'm queer. I can do whatever <laughs> I want. Anyway, this week, because we're coming up on the holiday season and I'm a holiday kind of gay, I thought, why don't I talk about something that brings me joy and I know brings Aaron joy? And of course, there's a reason for this, because it is, as some of you know, the 30th anniversary of the bodyguard <laughs> arguably a queer classic if for no other reason than it stars whitney houston but there's also the upcoming biopic of whitney houston called i want to dance with somebody mm-hmm. so i just thought this would be an opportunity just to sort of share how much i love whitney houston and how i was kind of obsessed with her right now <laughs> um because i do think that you know in typical queer person fashion like i think that you know she embodies in her soulful performances so much of the contradictions of queer life mm-hmm. and queer emotional life in particular and there's also the fact that she probably we think was queer herself mm-hmm. so i don't know that's just what i wanted to articulate that i'm in a, a whitney frame of mind yeah so what do you how, why don't you give us a little bit of what you like about whitney uh well the voice the voice the voice the voice and the voice yes well said yeah, I don't know what else to say when we're talking about Whitney Houston. You go back, you listen to her early albums, and there really is no parallel. Right. Like, you know, she really was sort of in a class of her own. Right, and I mean, because I always sort of wonder, I mean, because I have a, so the academic brain never goes away. But it's always just like, so what is it about figures like Whitney or Mariah or Tina Turner or any other divas? Like, what is it, or Patti Lapone, to take us back to American Horror Story, that appears appeals to gay men in particular? Like, I'm always just sort of like, what is it about them that draws us? Obviously, there's, you know, that we're drawn to strong femininity, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But, I, I mean, I just think that there's something really rich and emotional about all of her music, particularly her ballads, that calls to my queer soul. Mm-hmm. And for me, the, the very obvious gospel inflection in her voice is what does it for me. Uh, and that connection to something that isn't just sort of great music, but that really is spiritual in mm-hmm. nature. You know, for me, I, I can't speak for all of her fans, but that's certainly what it does it for me. Well, speaking of which, maybe we, I'm actually going to double in, double dip, and make this also an Are You Even Gay? So I have a confession to make. Um, I know that this is the 30th anniversary of The Bodyguard, but arguably her other great cinematic appearance was in The Preacher's Wife, like it was everywhere, like mm-hmm. in the 90s. I have to admit, however, that I have not seen The Preacher's Wife. I'm like, I, I do, you can't just say that to our audience. You have to warn them a bit more than that. Do a better job preparing them. So let's go back. You have something that you need to to admit to. Right? I do have something I have to admit to. <laughs> I have never. Let me reiterate. I have never seen the preacher's wife. Not all of it. At least not all the way through that I can remember. My goodness. I know. I mean, if you could see the look of absolute contempt and like just bone deep disappointment mm-hmm. that Aaron has on his face right now. Right. I. I, I there are no words. I'm, well, I mean, there I'm, are some words. You could, you could, you could ask we, the we thing. Can't, we can't air the words. <laughs> well, you could say the thing. <laughs> well, I could say the thing. I could say the thing. I could ask, are you even, but I'm, before I can even do that, at least you've seen Wait In Exhale, right? I actually haven't seen that either. That, I was going to say, that was her other great cinematic masterpiece that I've also not seen. And I feel deeply, even more deeply oh ashamed God. because it has Angela Bassett, oh, who I love dearly. I could have I, I I overlooked the one. But this, this really is just too much. So now I really do have to ask you the question, <laughs> TJ. Are you even gay? I mean, yes. Uh, the last time I checked, I still was. But I know that I sometimes skate on some thin ice when it comes to the... Uh, the, the the gaping holes in my <laughs> my queer knowledge. Yes, that was a deliberate pun. I just can see Aaron's the look of contempt just grows more acute by the moment. Can't really. take him nowhere. <laughs> yep, I'm really digging myself dim and deep. But anyway, I just wanted to speak a little bit about that because I do think that you know, it feels to me sometimes like Whitney has been not forgotten, obviously. And I, if nothing else, this new biopic I think will help sort of reintroduce her to a new generation. Because I do wonder sometimes, you know, with the kids today and living in perpetual present time, like mm-hmm. it's easy for them to forget who came before. Plus, of course, you know, we were talking about New York City and 1980s culture. Like, Winnie was a big part of the 80s. Like, mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, there's a relevance there, too. Yep. 
All right. Well, I think that's all I have to say. Uh, See, so yeah, I did a double dip segment. What's bringing me joy? And are you even gay? Mm-hmm. And what brings me joy is being gay. Yes, that <laughs> is definitely true. That is, yes. I mean, that is the thing that I truly, truly love. Yes, and you being gay brings me joy as well. <laughs> it brings everyone joy. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll be right back to sort of give us our usual closing out segment. All right, well, thank you everyone for joining us for another great episode of Queens of the Bees. I'm designating it as great. I hope you all agree. Mm-hmm. Um, I, we love doing this show. We love talking about pop culture with all of you. We've been a little bit inconsistent, but, you know, we do the best we can with what we have. So, which, speaking of which, we have one more episode coming up. It's going to be a holiday-themed episode. Mm-hmm. We are going to be reviewing the new Hallmark movie. But after that, we are going to take a brief one-month hiatus because... We are going to be traveling for the holidays. We have some other stuff coming up, but worry not. We'll be back better than ever in 2023. So I'm not even going, or should I even bother asking Aaron about your social media? Because I know you're sort of a Philistine or a a paleo person when it comes to that. (laughs) No need to ask you about my social media, but I'll take this time to say happy holidays to all of our listeners. And like TJ said, we are looking forward to uh, being back out there for you again in 2023. Right. Anyway, so we'll have one more episode before then, but in the meantime, you can also check us out in a variety of places. You know, we're, well, you can check me out anyway. You can always check me out. And then you can't help it. <laughs> he likes it when you check him out. But you can follow me on my personal account um, on Twitter for the moment at TJ West and the number three, although who knows how long that'll last with Elon Musk being a fucking monster. Um, you can also follow us on Instagram. You can follow my personal account, Thomas West and the number three, or Queens of the Bees, um, which, you know, we've been posting very consistently on there. We're almost up to 400 followers on the Instagram, which is very exciting. I can see Aaron. I can feel Aaron's excitement mm-hmm. pulsing from from nearby. And I'm lactating. <laughs> you can also check out my writing um, at Omnivorous, the newsletter that I run over at Substack, where I do frequently write about gay stuff. I'm, in fact, writing something about... Brennan Fraser's Queer Appeal as we speak. So that'll be fun. So please check me out there. And if you feel like you want to hear what I have to say or read what I have to say, please do subscribe. And then lastly, if you have a few extra moments, please do take time to rate or review us um, wherever you get your podcasts, particularly Apple, because that's where most people get their podcasts these days. We do appreciate every single rating and review, even the negative ones. And if... I will accept even negative or constructive criticism. I'm wow. in the spirit of the holiday. <laughs> I feel like it's appropriate that I can open up my heart to some constructive criticism if you should f- feel so inclined. I will, however, ask for a ho- special Christmas bonus that you only give us positive feedback for the month <laughs> of December. So please do rate us and review us. It really helps build our visibility, which for a little podcast like ours is incredibly helpful. So, I think that is all I have for this week. So, for Queens of the Bees, I'm TJ. And I'm Aaron. And we will be back with you next week. Bip, bip, bip.